Uh, third edition D&D Player's Handbook originally came bundled with its very own character generator CD for you to use on your PC. This disc was marked as Demonstration Version 1.0 because it was the beginning of... absolutely nothing. Thank goodness all of Watsi's future digital tools managed to avoid any pitfalls. As long as you don't look at the 4th edition press material or pre-D&D Beyond 5th edition tools. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of our other RPGs, D&D is like pizza. If you don't have it at least once a week, can you really say you like pizza? Hey folks, Ange here. I've been playing D&D and other RPGs since 1986, and I've been GMing since around the mid-2000s. I started writing for Gnome Stew in 2014. Around 2017, they let me start running the blog's podcast, The Gnomecast, and in 2021, they made me head gnome in charge of the whole thing. And I am Jared. I am the review gnome at Gnome Stew. I've been gaming since roughly 1985, in addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew. I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be jumping into our Dungeon Masters Workshop, where we'll be taking a look at using virtual tabletops. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. As I mentioned in last episode's campaign journal, this session for my Depths of Zendrick campaign was in person. To be fair, I was a bit worried headed into this session as I woke up on the Monday before with a very nasty head cold. It's one thing to have to cancel our regular online game, but with Laura coming into town and everyone planning on getting together for pizza wings and D&D, I was worried I was going to have to cancel due to germs. (laughs) (sighs) Thankfully, by Friday, I felt well enough to run had tested negative for COVID, and everyone was cool with me coming with just a lingering cough. The last time I ran in person, I tried running off the laptop with all my session notes that I had already populated into the Shard BTT. Unfortunately, that gave me a headache as I was moving my vision back and forth between the screen and the table. To avoid that for this session, I made sure to have all of my stats and info printed out. But hilariously, I somehow forgot the front page of my notes between (laughs) home and gaming. For the most part, this wasn't a huge deal because all of the encounter information was on the later pages, but on that front page, I had information about NPCs that were referencing (laughs) some plot points that I was going to be giving the players. The first was for Woody's character, Manuk. He had missed the previous session, and he would have checked in with his house, House Vidalis, which would include some plot things I was seeding for later. Thankfully, I was able to find those NPC names in the City of Stormrich PDF, which was on my iPad. The second were some names I needed for a plot hook for this current wave of exploration. Orson, their expedition boss, sent each team out in a different direction with instructions to find a good settlement location for the refugees to start their farm commune. He was also going to ask each team to check in on something for him. And he asked our intrepid heroes to check in on the Stonefist mine. These names were something I made up, so there was no finding them anywhere else in some (laughs) other PDF that happened to be on my my iPad. Luckily, I had a couple of the names in Shard in encounters that I had set up in there. I knew we wouldn't be getting to those encounters, but I wanted the names so I could be like, hey, could you people go check in on these folks? Their names are such and such. (laughs) And it really breaks immersion when you can't actually give them the name. It's like, that's not important. You'll, You'll remember it when you get there. 
please find insert name later. Yeah, yeah. But I was able to get the name of the two brothers they're going to go find. And okay. It, it, like I said, it's not a huge issue, but it makes me feel better as a GM to stay consistent with my names. So off into the wilds, my players went. We had established some exploration rules, which required that they take on different roles during the exploration part of the day. And again, with the camping part of the evening. They all seem to appreciate this. First, I found them coming across a farmstead that was being attacked by ogres. All of the residents were holed up in a sturdy stone windmill, but the ogres were being particularly insistent. This ended up being a fun fight that wasn't too hard. Ogres are actually easy to hit. Their big danger is when they hit you back because they hit back hard. The PCs made good use of fairy fire to give advantage on attacks, and I had fun with one of the ogres getting distracted by how pretty he was because he was glowing purple. <laughs> After they cleared off the ogres, the PCs met that small farm community called Mother Mally's Misfits. It was an eclectic group of varied folks of outcasts um, led by a middle-aged tiefling woman. And while it was a small scene, I think the PCs appreciated getting to see a glimpse of the type of people that would settle into the wilds of Zendrick. We happily played through a couple more days of exploration. No one failed their traveler's curse, save in the morning. And the way I was going to be working that is each morning they make a save, and if they fail the save, they get a level of exhaustion. And I'm using the exhaustion rules kind of from the new 1D&D playtest, which mm. I believe is similar to something in the um, the Ravenloft stuff. Yeah, it's, it's similar to how they uh, work stress instead of uh, short-term madness in uh, uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. None of my players failed their save, though. Laura did fail initially for Rena, but she ended up using her inspiration to re-roll, so they haven't had to experience having any of that exhaustion, which is also going to be narratively accompanied by confusion on which direction they're going. Because the whole thing with Zendrick is it has this traveler's curse which gets in the way of mapping and exploring and establishing routes from one point to another. They did come across some magical flowers, which could have been deadly, but they all made their, well, most of them made their saves, and they were able to lead Perrin away before he just sat down to die amongst the pretty flowers. <laughs> there was also an overnight random encounter with some Will-O-The-Wisps attacking their camp. That one was probably a little more dangerous than the CR indicated, but thankfully the Wisps don't have a whole lot of hit points. Yeah, if I remember correctly, those are kind of the opposite problem of the ogres. Yeah. Those are like really hard to to hit. Yeah, they're like a AC of eighteen or nineteen or something mm -hmm. like that, which is pretty tough for the level they're at. Yeah, I was like looking at it, going, "What is this Pathfinder?" <laughs> but they only have like twenty hit points, so one or two good hits and they're down. It's just they're hard to hit, and they do pump out a fair amount of damage. The following day, they ended up having an encounter with a storm boar, which I was very excited about. <laughs> this is a critter that Jared pointed out to me. It's a boar with lightning. <laughs> with lightning. To make it a challenging encounter, though, I also added some lightning methods with the idea that they were hovering around the boar because of its inherent electric magic. I kind of screwed up on this encounter, though. Out of the gate, Rena hit the boar with Tasha's mind whip where on a failed save, the target is only allowed to do one single thing. They can do an action, a move, or a bonus action. Period. Just one. But I got so excited about the boar's abilities that I completely forgot about this when I got to its turn. So I had it move and then do its lightning charge ability. 
which meant it was able to move through as a force of pure lightning through Vandrith, Perrin, and Manic in a single move. And it actually took Perrin down because despite being a frontline fighter, he is actually just a squishy wizard. <laughs> uh, and shield does not help against AoE attacks. <laughs> he was very salty about this. <laughs> um, I felt bad about screwing that up, though, so I gave all the characters involved in that move inspiration. Players were cool with it and understood, even if, as I said, Perrin was salty about getting taken down. Um, I also ended up forgetting that the Mephits are supposed to explode when they die, but I figure that one was probably to the player's benefit anyway. So if I screwed up one thing against them, I'd screw up the other thing for them. You know, whatever. <laughs> it was ended up being is what I hope for with an exploration counter, because one of the issues with random encounters is that they're usually pretty easy for a group to handle because they don't have to worry about saving the resources. They can just blah, unload on the encounter and then <laughs> take a rest and be fine for moving on. But this one was hard enough that it did tax them a little bit and have mm -hmm. to make them think tactically. Next time, there's going to be more exploration, and I believe they'll actually get to the mines to find out what's going on with the Stonefist Brothers. I'm also going to be running my teen D&D game and we'll have that one to talk about as well. Awesome. You know, it, it, if it makes you feel any better, you know, I did include an NPC that blew up. So <laughs> to make yes, up for you for yes getting... I know, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> you literally took out three of our four party members. <laughs> What's interesting is when you're mentioning having a hard time referencing the laptop while you're running, if I'm running completely online, I can have multiple tabs open and... If I have the right spreadsheet open, I can take notes and all of that, and I'm fine multitasking online. But if I have a laptop open and I'm running face-to-face, -face, I can't do it. My brain will not partition properly to bounce back and forth between that. Yeah, that in-person session back in August, I had to ask for some Advil because I was like, whoa, my head hurts. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was primarily an issue with my vision. Mm -hmm. And my buddy TJ laughed at me because I got all excited and got my dice out next to me in my little dice tray and never touched them once because I was using all of the dice inside shard. <laughs> all right. So our game, which Ange was a part of in our Midgard game, we finally got everyone together to continue the PC's raid on the ship that is housing kidnapped clerics, the humble knights of searing truth, which are zealots of ball. They're not very humble, but they feel like they're humble. That's what's important. <laughs> but they decided to get all of the clerics of non-draconic deities to confess that they have been aiding the cult of Nethus in undermining the Marauti Empire. So the PCs crept aboard the ship to rescue them. Because our adventurers do not know the meaning of the word subtle, the group <laughs> charged the Dragonborn Knight that was on the deck and the kobold assistants head-on. The group was a little roughed up after that fight, or they are a little roughed up going into that fight because they were still hurting from that drake that breathed all the little baby bitey drakes on them. All of the Dragonborn, since they were zealots of Baal, are some kind of red gold or flame dragon related uh, dragonborn, which made our sorcerer's offensive spells a little bit less effective. She has a lot of fire. She does. The middle deck of the ship, the PCs knew had at least four dragonborn guards because they had been watching the ships going in and off and changing uh, ships and things like that. They did a really good job of observing the ship to get this data. Because on that mid deck, everyone was sealed away in cabins. They knew there were probably at least four guards in the cabins but they could also see down into the cargo hold where they could see Lord Knight Stone and all of the clerics that he was holding for interrogation. And torturing. Yes. And they decided to head straight for the cargo hold instead of investigating the cabin. So all of the troops in the cabins were asleep 
and they're waiting for their turn up on deck. So if the PCs had investigated the cabins, they would have had a little bit of a break between opponents because it would have taken each individual cabin time to wake up and figure out what was going on. May have had a chance to surprise some people. We will never know. We'll never know. We don't do subtle. Yeah, they, they don't do subtle. The group failed their group stealth check to go straight into the cargo hold, which was not shocking. Um, it did wake up everyone, but they didn't all come rushing out all at once because they were asleep. I had them filter in at the end of each individual turn of combat once they were in the cargo hold. Became the Cuisinart of death. Yes. Because I built the top deck encounter to be moderately difficult and the individual cabins were meant to be uh, moderately difficult, I didn't think they were going to be too hard, but I should have realized that this group likes to chain encounters together. <laughs> so Lord Knight Stone by himself was meant to be a hard encounter. In addition to Lord Knight Stone, they had at the end of each turn some reinforcements dropping down into the deck. The nice thing about that was our Divine Soul Sorcerer had put up Spirit Guardians, so anybody that was dropping down in there as reinforcements was getting chopped up by the uh, Divine Cuisinart. For the most part, I don't think, except for the last one that came in. <laughs> yes. The additional guards that came in really weren't that big of a factor no. in the fight. Because, like, Eileen's spirit guardians really dealt with them pretty quickly. The kobold scout survived long enough to actually make an attack, and then he was gone. <laughs> All of the regular guards did not. I think one survived, but he didn't make it long enough to actually attack because he started his turn in the... The whirling fury of tiny Valkyries on their wolves. Tiny Valkyries on... On flying wolves. <laughs> wolves, that's it. Flying wolves. But yeah, it was the final um, the final knight that dropped down there had enough hit points that he actually waded through there and made a few attacks. Now, the funny thing about this was there are stats for Edgets, which are the actual trained soldiers of the Marodi Empire, and there are Edget novices, which are basically lower CR squires. I decided to change those edgets into novices. So the only ones I left the same were the kobold and the knight. And all of the other reinforcements I dropped down a little bit. And it didn't change a lot of how much damage they could output, but it changed a lot of how much damage they could take, which meant they were a lot more susceptible to getting taken out directly by the uh, spirit guardians. Mainly, I, I don't necessarily want to not have consequences for people taking less than optimal paths to their goal, but I also don't just want to murder everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Marin is not subtle. Yes. Marin is never going to be subtle. I don't think the word is in that character's <laughs> vocabulary. And while Mazram understands the need to be subtle, Mazram is also a walking tin can yes. <laughs> of dwarf cleric. Mazram understands that he just does not have the capacity to do it. <laughs> yes. So if Kizina doesn't roll well enough to like get everyone else through a stealth thing, <laughs> we're kind of just okay. The fight is starting. It's a now problem. Yeah. One of the the paladins of Ball made it through as a reinforcement who survived the spiritual blunder. And that made the fight a little bit more complicated. In this instance, by the end of the fight with uh, the Lord Knight and the Reinforcement Paladin, almost everyone in the party had made death saves, and our Psy Warrior, which is our least subtle knight character, had dropped to zero at least three times. I believe there was a large portion of that fight where Kazina had one hit point. Yes. 
Eileen kind of laughed and pointed out that the way Kazina's tactics were in that fight <laughs> is very similar to Dragon Age 2 <laughs> when you fight the big Kanari dude. Because he, if you stand toe-to-toe with him, he is going to tear you to shreds. So the whole fight is you run up, you hit him, you run away. You run up, you hit him, you run away. Oh, yeah. Kazina was making good use of that withdraw bonus action. <laughs> yes. It's like, I'm going to run up and hit him, and then I'm going to run away. <laughs> the other thing that I think was actually really clutch is I would have been worried about it becoming a TPK, except that Eileen rolled a 20 on one of her death saves one time, and... Popped up with one one hit point, and I believe she got uh, your cleric back up on his feet. Because she is a divine soul, she does have a little bit of healing. Yeah, and I think she used her Asimar healing to get him back on his feet. So it wasn't even a spell that she used for that. It was just sort of like desperation. <laughs> it, was, it was a very touch-and-go fight. It was... The tactics used were not the best. I mean, to be fair, Marin was doing some really impressive, like, slamming someone in a face and then doing the psychic push to slam them up against a wall. It was very impressive if you were only fighting that person. Yes. It was very much a one-on-one fight, but also it wasn't a one-on-one fight. (laughs) (laughs) What was interesting is after the fight, they realized all of the clerics that had been kidnapped have chains on them with a special lock. And each of the locks has a symbol for one of the cards from the arcana of the uh, deck of many things. Our Psy Warrior, Dragonborn, has a plus nine to Arcana and failed. Meaning it's like, oh, look, there are pretty symbols on these things. <laughs> and I think I think I even gave him my inspiration to reroll and he still failed. Yes, you granted him inspiration and he still blew that Arcana check. And like, Kazina's just standing there looking at it going, I don't want to deal with puzzles. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to do with this. I don't want to blow their heads off trying to free them. <laughs> I did roll for the clerics that were uh, prisoners, and one of the clerics managed to explain to them that it was all the symbols from the deck of many things and the names of all the different symbols. However, because it was getting late and we were all tired and our brains were kind of scattered at this point in time, rather than risk sleepy engagement with potentially dangerous puzzles, we called it a night there. (laughs) I don't like puzzles. (laughs) Well, I try and make puzzles things that make more sense in-game than necessarily things that are going to challenge you as a player. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to drop enough hints to kind of figure out what these are. It's not like a a super deep puzzle, but (laughs) it is something where if you don't at least know what the symbols are and (laughs) what they're called in the deck of many things, it's going to be a problem. (laughs) Yeah, it it was more I was thinking about it afterwards, and I realized that anytime I'm playing a video game RPG that I come across a puzzle, I'll poke at it a little bit, and then I go look up the walkthrough. There should be a divination spell in 5e that's just called walkthrough. Walkthrough. <laughs> it's called the Dear GM, Please Give Me a Big Clue. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Moving on into our Dungeon Master's Workshop, we're going to talk about virtual tabletops. So, Jared, what is your history with virtual tabletops? So, way back... When it first came out, I looked at Fantasy Grounds. At the time, the prevailing game for me was Pathfinder. So I was kind of looking at it for using it for Pathfinder. Part of that was because I was kind of interested in being able to cultivate a game that wasn't at the local game store. So I could maybe invite some people that I knew specifically to play on this platform. But the more I looked at it, importing maps and tokens and getting everything to work felt really intimidating. Now, keep in mind, this is Fantasy Grounds of... (laughs) 
this is probably within like a year or two of when it first started. So that's actually, it's actually a pretty old BTT. It's been out there for a while. I have opinions about Fantasy Grounds and its, its engineers. <laughs> I still have opinions about it, yes. Back then it was even more kind of like, I could figure out how to roll dice. UX? What's that? Yeah. It's gotten better, but it's still, yes. there's some very <sighs> obtuse controls in fantasy grounds there are some things that work better now but they're built on top of the framework that existed back then they didn't really change so much as just add some stuff to it it's definitely a powerful vtt but it works best for those who have the technical understanding to navigate through things from time to time in between then i have been a player in either fantasy grounds games or roll 20 so i got comfortable as a player on those platforms but I was really worried with all the bells and whistles available, I would get lost in those options and never manage to focus on prepping what I needed to prep because I tend to get lost in minutiae sometimes. It didn't help that at that point in time, I also ran into some people online talking about how oh, it just wasn't worth playing with GMs that didn't know how to take advantage of the platform because if they can't make, you know, they can't use all of these neat bells and whistles to make the maps do certain things or to automate these things that, why are you even playing online? We'll get to that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that that's like saying it's not worth playing a game at a con unless the GM has terrain. I, I know for your like. Uh. But you know when I'm already kind of intimidated, that kind of talk didn't help. So I decided I didn't want to engage with VTTs because they were just too much. Then there was this thing that you may have heard of, where no one was meeting face to face, <laughs> and I was not going to wait out an entire pandemic with no gaming. So I decided I needed to figure out some kind of online option. And at this point, I found Albert Rodeo, which is the VTT that I kind of wanted for years because basically you import maps. There are already predetermined tokens from, for different monster types. And there's even some utilitarian maps built into the platform. There's a simple drawing tool and a built-in die roller. And I used that to finish up my Tales of the Old Margrave game that I started face-to-face -face at the game store. Because it was the most common platform though, and I had a lot of, you know, it had a lot of character sheets for different types of games that I kind of wanted to be able to play online, I decided to sit down and force myself to learn Roll20, mainly because I've been a player on Roll20 more than just about anything else, so I already felt a little bit of comfort there. And I got a better idea of what I wanted to do when I was prepping for games, and I also got to see how other GMs were using the platform, and that eventually made me a little bit more comfortable. So Andrew, what's your history with VTTs? So oddly enough, in the very early 2000s, I played a D&D &D campaign with some EverQuest friends online. Uh, Kiana Winborn was my Legolas ripoff and my first third edition <laughs> character. We played online, purely text-based, and I want to say the VTT we used was called Open RPG. I may be wrong, it was a long time ago, and... The GM and I are still friends on Facebook, and we were talking about it, and we're, we think that was the name of it, but we're not sure. It was very rudimentary towards the stuff that we have now, and like I said, it was purely text-based. There was no video, there was no voice. Yeah, I think I kind of vaguely remember that one now that you mention it. At some point around 2014, I had a group of folks I played with at Every Origins, we decided we wanted to play between conventions, so we started an online game in Roll20. Around that same time, and it may have even been before this, I'm, I'm fuzzy on which happened first, 
I was invited into a Tyranny of Dragons campaign run by my friend Jen, who I have known since the late 90s, but we had never met in person at that point. We were purely online friends. <laughs> Both of those things were in Roll20. Up until 2020, most of my VTT experience was purely with Roll20. It had video and voice, if a bit glitchy, and it had all the tools we needed to play a game virtually with friends online. While it was not my primary source of gaming, it did open up opportunities to play online with folks I couldn't otherwise play with. And then, as Jared mentioned, <laughs> March of 2020 came around and everything had to go online. That ended up expanding my awareness and understanding of VTTs. Basically, it was my lifesaver of being able to continue playing role-playing games on, you know, like online. Because if I hadn't had that, during that first part, uh, for basically the rest of 2020, I don't know what I would have done. There's a lot of options out there, and there are plenty that I don't have any experience with, and there's a bunch that I have a lot of experience with, and we'll get into this, but one of the things to understand about VTTs is something that my friend Doc Palindrome recently said during a conversation <laughs> about my frustration with a certain aspect of Roll20. Every VTT does one to four things exceedingly well and one <laughs> to four things exceedingly bad. I hate and need them all. <laughs> so, Jared, what are some VTTs that you are familiar with? I mean, obviously Roll20 and Albert Rodeo, but tell us more about your experience with those and others. So, yeah, I've spent the most time with Roll20 at this point, and Albert Rodeo is a close second. I'm still at that point where I am comfortable with Fantasy Grounds as a player, but I am not happy enough with it to want to run games with it. I've played around with this, but I've not had the opportunity to actually run a game with it, but I really like Shard Tabletop. Shard is built to just be a D&D focused virtual tabletop, and Anne has more experience with it, so I will leave that to her, but I really like it. I wish that I had discovered it before I had invested a whole lot into Roll20. Yeah. But the other problem with that is, is that Roll20 still has the official implementations from Wizards of the Coast as of this podcast, which means that Shard is only going to get you like third party D&D material without some work on the back end. Yep. So similar to Jared, I've spent most of my time in Roll20. Uh, it's been the home to a few different D&D campaigns I've played, as well as a bunch of other games. And as we always say in the beginning of the show, as much as we love D&D, we also love other games. And one of the props I will give Roll20 is that it has a lot of support for other game systems. Yeah. There's a lot of character sheets built into it, which is pretty much the core of what you need to make work. I have run Savage Worlds campaigns on Roll20. I have run Tales from the Loop. I have run Monster of the Week. I have run Uncharted Worlds. Um, I've run Knights Black Agents. When it came to running my D&D campaign, though, because I had played in D&D campaigns, I knew I did not want to run my D&D campaign in Roll20, in part because I did not want to make the financial investment to have to buy all of the official material available. I feel that. <laughs> yeah. Well, when we originally, when my group originally was looking at setting up my friend Tristan's Silua campaign, 
in Roll20, the group kind of chipped in together to give Tristan the money to buy all of the material. So we will continue to play that campaign in Roll20, but I knew I, one, because we'd already done it for one GM, I wasn't going to ask the group to do it for me. And I found out that I could do what I needed to do in Shard for that. Beyond that, I have played campaigns in Fantasy Grounds, which again, I will play in as a player. I'm not going to invest in it to use it as a jam. It is very much one of those things that is, it is a very powerful tool, but it is also something designed by engineers without anyone guiding them on how to make it user-friendly. Reminds me of Office Space, where, you know, you need the person that can explain engineer to the customers. <laughs> yeah, my, my example of this from Fantasy Grounds is when you click on the button to change your token, it opens a browser window. It's not <laughs> a window for you to click on a file and then hit OK, and that is the file you've selected. No, no, it just opens a browser window. And I was like, what is this? What does it want me to do? I don't understand. And basically, you are supposed to put your file into that folder and then hit a different button that then allows you to select that picture. And I'm like, why? Why is this? This doesn't make any sense. I think the thing that kind of uh, bumped me to Roll20 over Fantasy Grounds was when I was playing in uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist game. My friend trying to give us stuff in our inventory. <laughs> now, I will say... For a GM who understands it and knows how to navigate it, it is incredibly powerful. My buddy TJ used this for our Eberron campaign he ran for a bit in 2020. It works really well if you know all the ins and outs. Like, I can do my character's attack, and if I have the target selected, it just automatically does damage to that target. It takes a lot of the accounting out of the work of the GM. Yeah, I do really like that aspect of it. It's neat. I kind of wish you could automatically apply damage in, in uh, Roll20, yeah. but I don't necessarily want to jump through the other hoops involved in Fantasy Grounds. <laughs> I also played a campaign in Astral. Astral was a very ambitious VTT that had a lot of beautiful visuals and bells and whistles, and the GMs that I know that set up their campaigns in Astral, loved a lot of the tools it had to offer, but it did not have official support from D&D, so you couldn't actually get the official material in. You had to manually add anything in. It had other support for other games as well, but I never explored any of that. It had a really bad character sheet. For the <laughs> most part, we would just program our character sheets so we could hit a button to roll our attacks and our skills and that was it. Everything else was offline. And because of all of the fancy bells and whistles with their virtual lighting and fog of war and all of that, it was really expensive to maintain and they could not afford to keep going. And so <laughs> Astral shut down at the end of August 22. The campaign we were playing in that one has now switched to Shard. I also have a little bit of experience, a teeny tiny bit of experience playing on The Forge, which is a website that facilitates using the Foundry VTT. It's a little bit confusing, but I like what I see so far, but I'm not sure I'm ready to do the financial investment to get set up in that one. 
because you have to pay $50 for the licensing for Foundry, and then you have to pay a subscription account for um, the Forge to be able to run games. You can play for free, but you have to have a subscription account to... And I think the level I was looking at would end up being about $48 a year, which this is not astronomical amounts mm. of money, but it is still a little more than I can justify right now. But it is something that is on my radar because it looks like it has decent support for most of the Free League games, Savage Worlds, and it looks like it has good compatibility with D&D Beyond so that if you have stuff purchased on D&D Beyond, you can connect. I don't know the specifics on this, but you can connect pretty well. So it's it's something I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah, and I, I think it's probably a good time to point out, neither one of us would claim to be absolute experts on VTTs no. at all. We're going to talk about things we're comfortable with, and that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to touch on everything. I've heard tons of people talk about Foundry and just love it to death. Every time I've looked at it, I have gotten that intimidation factor with it. And so I have not taken the plunge into that one. So if you're a big fan of Foundry, I am not saying it's bad. I'm saying that it has intimidated me, but I know that there are like, there's actually a ton of fan-made modules for facilitating games that aren't officially on there that I have heard are really great too. Moving on, we've sort of covered this already, but what virtual tabletop do you use most often? Yeah, I, I mean, I am almost always using Roll20 at this point, but I have used Alba Rodeo a lot. <laughs> and in fact, I just used it for the one D&D playtest that we ran, in part because of the way the character sheets work in Roll20, all of the things that change in one D&D might not have worked right in Roll20, so I would rather everyone just make their character sheets and, you know, do everything the way they normally would, and we were just using the you know, Albert Rodeo for positioning and maps and things like that. That was actually my very first experience using Albert Rodeo. I That one hadn't been on my radar. I mean, I'd heard of it, but I'd never actually looked at it. And that was my first time interacting with it. Yeah. And I use that a lot. You know, when we first, you know, when the pandemic first hit, I used that a lot for my Tales of the Old Margrave campaign because my players were basically just doing what they would normally do on their character sheets. But then we were using, you know, that to track where everybody was moving and everything. I like it a lot. I really do. We'll get, get into that a little bit more, but those two are the ones that I am most likely going to default to most of the time. There are some other ones I would be tempted to look at, but it's not because of D&D. It's because of other things going on. So what's your most common go-to? Sheer bulk of playtime, it's probably Roll20. But again, I very purposefully chose not to run my D&D campaign in Roll20. There are some aspects of Roll20 that irritate me quite a bit. The fact that you cannot just go to one place and turn on character names under tokens infuriates <laughs> me. Absolutely infuriates me that it is so complicated to do this one simple feature. And this isn't even getting into having health bars above the tokens. It's like you have to set it on the campaign page, which is outside of the virtual tabletop space, <laughs> and then you have to set it inside the virtual tabletop space, and then you have to set it on each individual token, which you can screw up if you drag them into the next map the wrong way. It's just why this this <laughs> this this virtual tabletop has existed since 2012, 
it should not be this hard to do that. Now, I, to, to Roll20's credit, it has done a lot to improve their functionality with video and voice. they constantly working with game companies to get good character sheets in there and get support for those games. It's just a financial investment that I wasn't willing to make when I was already frustrated with the platform for those small reasons. Right. I ended up choosing Shard because Shard was very specifically geared towards just 5e. It has a very active Discord community where I could go and ask questions and pretty quickly get answers to those questions from the devs themselves. They have a community manager named Nick who keeps an eye on Discord, and if he sees a question that can't be answered by the community or him, he'll immediately ping one of the actual developers who will come in and, and answer the question for you, which I thought was fantastic. It ended up fitting the amount of time I was willing to invest in setting up the campaign and setting up the material, and I've found that adding what I need into the game works really well. Financial investment, I think I have the subscription level that's $20 a year, which lets me host two campaigns. It ends up working. It does a fair job of importing information from D&D Beyond, so you can create a character on D&D Beyond, import it into Shard, and it'll import the class, the subclass, the species, the background, the spells, all the stuff you've had it in. So I spent probably... A few, you know, like total time over the course of a month, a few days time plugging in information into Shard so that I'd have all of the available subclasses, all of the available races, all of the available spells, all the stuff my players would need to create whatever characters they wanted for an Eberron campaign, I made sure were available. And then when it comes to setting up encounters, I just, creating the monsters is super easy. They've got a really fun interface for finding art for tokens. Basically, it's got a Google, kind of a Google search built in where you plug in like uh, Dwarven Commoner and like it'll just find on Google art. Now, obviously, this is not art you have technical permission to use for any legal purposes or any reselling purposes. But for your personal campaign, you know, it's been really good. There's a few little like it doesn't have anything fancy like virtual lighting. Um, most of the Fog of War stuff is very simple and basic. My players don't like that they don't have access to the initiative tracker, but each token on the map will have a number next to it, which indicates what order it is in the initiative, which tends to work enough. And I like the interface for the GM because I have a list of all the players and all of the NPCs and all of the monsters in the encounter, and that list shows me their AC, their hit points, their initiative number, and clicking on the name pops open the actual sheet. And, you know, so I, I like the way Shard works. I was going to say from, I haven't played with it or run it, but I spent some time like running some, you know, like pseudo encounters just to see how it ran. And I think like what you were saying, what it does do, it does intuitively mm -hmm. because it is only trying to figure out how to get it to work for one game. Yes. And I mean, there's been a few little things like figuring out how to customize certain things. We had an initial problem where Tristan's paladin, Vandrith, is an Oath of Glory paladin, and his oath abilities weren't showing up properly. And I finally went to the Discord, and I'm like, hey, 
this subclass's stuff isn't working properly, and the they were able to come back and be like, oh, yeah, a couple of months ago when that was getting imported, it wasn't importing properly. If you re-import it, it, it should, and sure enough, I re-imported it, and all of a sudden everything was fixed on his, his sheet. I also house-ruled that everyone starts with two inspiration per session, just automatically. Oh, um, like, we can possibly re-earn it later, but everyone starts with two inspiration because I want them to use it. And I was able to figure out a way to actually put two inspiration dots on their sheet so it's right there on the sheet. So it's got a lot of cool things. Actually, in our Undermountain campaign last night, Woody is playing our cleric, and he discovered that he could fiddle with his spells so that you could just click on the number that showed up for how much he healed you for, and you could apply it to your character as a heal. Just click on it, apply his heal. And I'm like, oh, that's actually pretty cool. The basics of running a game in Shard, very intuitive. And there's a lot of other stuff you could get into if you want to dive into the weeds, which leads us to our next question. <laughs> Is there a reason to choose one VTT over another one? I would say that, unfortunately, kind of like what you had said way up front at the beginning of this discussion, no platform has everything I want in one place. There's no one perfect solution for me. If you want official D&D support and a wide range of D&D products, I think Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds are going to be your best options right now. I'm much more comfortable with Roll20, and I think the ubiquity of Roll20 also means that gamers are kind of either used to the interface or can find resources to explain the interface. I do think that anyone intimidated by VTTs or that doesn't want to fiddle with too many bells and whistles, I think they really should look at Albert Rodeo. If you're the type of person that has never done anything online and you really just want something to give you tactical positioning so you can see that map and everybody can see their tokens, I think Albert Rodeo is just absolutely great for that. And there's even a Chrome plugin now so that you can add an initiative tracker to the interface and it works really well. I will say that I use Brave as my usual internet browser, which is a Chromium-based thing, but it's not Chrome. So both Roll20 and Alba Rodeo have some quirky interactions with that browser, so I still default back to using Chrome when I use either of those VTTs. So your browser might be another thing that makes you pick a VTT over another. What are some of your uh, reasons, Ange? I mean, ultimately, which VTT to use is a very personal choice. It's going to have to be what works for you as a GM and what is going to work for your players. And let's be honest, <laughs> it's what you've invested the most money in so far. Yep. <laughs> TJ, in my group, has invested in Fantasy Grounds. He paid for the license, the lifetime license. They have Fantasy Grounds, the newer versions, which I think is ubiquity. If Fantasy Grounds is a little weird. There's an older version and a newer version. When we first started playing it, the newer version was very buggy, and we had a lot of issues with it, so we had to switch to the older version. But when we did a campaign last year, beginning of this year, in it, it was much smoother in the newer version. They did a lot of improvements. There is an active development group for Fantasy Grounds constantly trying to improve it. It's just, it's like I said, it's not, it's not for me as a GM, but it's what TJ put his money into. So whenever TJ is going to run a campaign, it's probably going to be in Fantasy Grounds. Whereas Tristan has 
the financial investment in Roll20, which means his D&D games are going to be in Roll20. Another friend chose to use Astral because it had very cool bells and whistles, but that obviously didn't last because they were a little <laughs> overreaching with what they thought they could do. You know, and as, as Jared mentioned earlier, it can be very easy to get intimidated by a VTT. There are so many options, so many choices. It can be easy to get lost trying to do everything exactly right. And you end up burning yourself out trying to prep for the game, prep for the VTT more than you prep for the game. And you have to find the right balance between what is going to make running the game easiest for you and what's going to be the most fun for your players. Building off of that, what type of investment in time, preparation, and money do you need for the VTTs that you use, Jared? As long as you're comfortable with using the drawing tool on the fly, Albert Rodeo is probably the easiest one just to pick up and play. Because there are maps that are already built in there, so if you just need, okay, I'm going to do grasslands, and then maybe I'll draw some green circles to be some trees... <laughs> You're good. There are tokens for each of the character classes, as well as for different creature types. So there's a token for giants, there's a token for dragons, fiends, constructs. You can import more complex maps. You can hide tokens to be revealed and draw things on the map and save them for later. And the interface will remember that as long as you share the right instance of Albert Rodeo, because it'll give you like a little thing that you can send out as a password to make sure everybody's going to the right instance. And you don't clear out your cookies for the website. But it is very much a pick-up-and-play experience with Albert Rodeo. There is not a whole lot that you have to do on the front end to just be able to use it at a base level. Roll20 is going to be more expensive and more time-intensive. I would like to interject that it's more expensive if you want access to the official material. Yes, that is a good point. I have never given any money to Roll20, but I have run other systems on there. I just know that to run D&D to its best ability, it is a financial investment. Yeah, that is a good point. Uh, and honestly, if your DM has all of this stuff set up and you're a player, this is not something you need to worry about. But as a DM, if you do want it to reference things like, you know, like the subclasses in Tasha's or things like that, if you want to actually have monster stats for things in Morden Canaan's, you're going to be paying extra money for those. And most of the resources in Roll20 cost about what you would pay, pay for the PDF version of something. So it's not the full cost of the item, but it's probably 50 to 75% of what the actual physical resource would cost you. You can fill out character sheets directly if you don't have access to a subclass. It's just going to be a little bit more time consuming you know, where you're going to be typing in exactly what those abilities do. You can add in things like, you know, a name a box and say, this is how many uses of a thing I have. But then your your balance between time and money preparation is definitely shifting towards the time side in those cases. You can customize monsters. I've done this a few times where you can swap out abilities and it's not really that hard in Roll20 to say this is doing fire damage instead of radiant damage. Or, you know, you add some other ability that's a one time you know, ability that you cut and paste in there. That's not hard, although it takes a little bit more effort if it's something like, oh, it does 46 damage. If you want to code it to where it actually does 46 damage when you click on the ability, rather than you just clicking on 46 dice and rolling that. And sometimes that's, you know, it's not worth it to do the extra coding to make sure that it recognizes the dice. If you pay for adventures from Wizards of the Coast or Kobold Press or some other uh, publishers, 
that's when the interface really shines on Roll20 because in most cases, while it's going to be more expensive, you're going to have all of the encounter maps set up. They're going to have monster tokens that are usually like hidden so that you can reveal them when the PCs run into them and they're already going to be on that map. And if you can get used to referring to the encounter descriptions in the interface, you're going to have a lot easier time running adventures if you buy the whole adventure experience basically on Roll20. Personally, sometimes I have a little bit harder time running encounters straight out of Roll20 because it's all like in notes and you have to remember which note you're going to open up. So like if I own an adventure on D&D Beyond and in Roll20, I'm probably going to read it out of uh, D&D Beyond instead of Roll20. But all of the stuff, the map, the, the lighting, all of that is already done if you buy the official adventure. So, Ange, what about your startup cost and time and money? <laughs> Um, you know, it, it, like I said earlier, it's the elephant in the room here, the cost, especially if you're running D&D, because if you want access to all of the D&D materials, it can end up costing a fair amount, regardless of where you're getting it. And if you're not careful, you can end up having to pay for it multiple times because you're buying it on D&D Beyond, you're buying it on Roll20, you're buying the physical book. It will be interesting to see where this is in a couple of years when Wizards comes out with whatever they're going to have as their own personal BTT for Dungeons and Dragons. I am not hopeful. I am not doom and gloom about this. I'm curious where they're going with it. Yeah. And I do hope they don't necessarily sever their relationship with other VTTs, but that may happen. Yeah, and it, they are starting to bundle some of the physical books with D&D Beyond, so it's a little bit cheaper to get stuff on D&D Beyond if you order the, your books from that bundle, too. Honestly, at this point, because I don't have anything on D&D <laughs> Beyond, I'm kind of waiting for the next iteration of things, and once one D&D becomes whatever it is going to become, yeah. I will probably start making sure I have those books on D&D Beyond, mm. especially if I can do a bundle where I can get the physical book and the virtual access, mm -hmm. you know, that I would like that. With Shard, I only get access to the SRD and any third-party content I pay for. As I said, my, my adventure tier subscription is $20 a year, um, and I can add as much of my own content as I, I want. If I had the next tier up, which I think is $40 a year, it would be the Game Master tier. At that point, I could actually share my library with all of the monsters and stuff I have added with another GM who could use that in their game. I think of that next year, too, there's like free stuff every month. Now, some of that free stuff may not be what you want, but some of it might be pretty good. There's actually some free stuff you get at every tier. Um, I haven't really done anything with it. And I will also point out that Shard has, for free, inherent in it, they have some of their own subclasses available and some species that you can choose to play as that they kind of added as a filler because they only had access to the SRD. You know, but ultimately, I think every GM needs to personally sit down, examine what they need out of a VTT, what they're willing to invest in it financially and time-wise, because ultimately I have made the trade that I have not financially invested in Fantasy Grounds or Roll20 or or D&D Beyond even, because I am willing to put in the time 
on Shard to populate my campaign with the information I want available for my players. Mm -hmm. So it's that trade-off. I think another important thing to point out to every single GM, make sure you understand what your player's experience is going to be. Because you want this to be as smooth as possible for your players. You don't want your players getting frustrated because they're not sure what button to push or how to set up their character or anything like that. So make sure you understand what their experience is going to be. When I was initially setting up Shard, I basically had a night where I invited several of my friends to just come on and like here randomly pick a third level character or make one on the fly, which was actually really easy for them to do. And then we ran through an encounter and they got to play with the buttons and let me know how they felt about the situation. Because at that point, I hadn't really experienced the player side of things. I think a little bit after that, Jared set up a campaign and I made a character in that and got to poke at some of the buttons and see a little bit more of it. And I'm like, okay. And now that I'm playing in my friend Scott's Undermountain campaign, I've seen more of how it functions for a player. But it is also, it is very important for you as a GM to understand what your player's experience is going to be, because you want to make it as smooth as possible for them. Yeah. So what are the drawbacks to playing via virtual tabletops? Most VTTs that I have used don't have the best video or audio integration, which means you likely need a separate meeting software running. I think only Roll20 actually has the video and voice in it that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, I'm... Something else was nagging at me that it might, but I can't remember. But it also means your screen is going to start getting kind of crowded with having so many different programs running. I've got two monitors, and I've had that ever since I've been working from home, and that's helped a lot with this issue. Mm -hmm. But if you have one monitor, and you have meeting software up, and a VTT, and whatever notes you're referencing, it can get a little crowded. Because when I first started running, even on Albert Rodeo, I was trying to do that on one screen before I had the second screen up and running. VTTs are susceptible to bad internet, and <laughs> sometimes the servers at the VTT themselves are just not working as well as they could be. So if your internet is fading in and out, or the site itself is having problems, no gaming for you. VTTs can definitely be different levels of intimidating, so there's going to be a little bit of a learning curve to running games. Some things have slightly less of a learning curve, and some things have a lot less of a learning curve for players, but there's still going to be some kind of learning curve because it's not just directly playing the game. If you like officially represented options, nobody has everything I want all in one place at the moment. There are people that are on uh, Fantasy Grounds that are not on Roll20. Roll20 has a lot of stuff, but there's still things here and there. I would love to get the Seas of Adari material, but that is currently only on uh, Fantasy Grounds. So someday, if that gets on Roll20, I'm going to be picking that up immediately. <laughs> And that is probably only going to get more complicated as uh, WotC rolls out their solution, because if they don't license the 2024 rules to any other VTTs, that means that you could have everything up to a point, but everything that's brand new will not be showing up anywhere else. I don't know. There's not a perfect one VTT to rule them all. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like the quote from my friend earlier, everyone does one to four things great, <laughs> Every single one of them does one to four things really bad. So back in March of 2020, when my in-person Saturday group made the switch to playing online, about an hour in to us getting set up, <laughs> my buddy's wife popped her head into the camera to see how we were doing. And she was like, wait, you're not playing yet? <laughs> and I was like, 
no, because I fully planned for the first hour and a half to two hours of this very first session to be technical difficulties. Mm -hmm. We were using Zoom for video and voice. We were able to get everyone onto that without too much issue. I believe one person had some issue getting it connected and their camera was being fussy and there will be technical difficulties when you first start. And that's just with the video and voice. And then in the actual VTT space, it's like you got to make sure everyone's connected. Everyone has access to the character. You need to pl a plan for and account for these technical difficulties. They do get easier as time goes by, provided the internet isn't being a jerk. I think we've had a couple of times where you've tried to run games and your <laughs> internet said no. Yep. And it was just like, okay, we're calling it here because... <laughs> the internet doesn't want to let Jared play. Yep. You know, we keep mentioning that there's no VTT that's perfect, but the more VTTs you experience, the more <laughs> you'll wish you could just mash them all together and take the pieces you want. Mm -hmm. But it will also give you a better understanding of what you as a GM will be most comfortable with. You have to figure out what is going to be best for you and what is going to be best for your players and then stick with that. We'll figure it out. So what are the advantages to playing on virtual tabletops? <laughs> I have some great friends that I have either met only by having conversations online or by meeting them at conventions. And I've had some friends that I have played with face to face that have moved away. And VTTs have allowed me to have regular games with them again. And that's honestly the best part of any of it. Yeah. I mean, to be completely honest, I play game. <laughs> VTTs have been an integral part of my gaming experience since before the pandemic because it allowed me to continue gaming with friends I otherwise would only see once or twice a year at conventions or never because we only communicated online like my friend Jen. <laughs> we have sent met in, met in person. I went down, hung out with her and her family. We actually played a face-to-face -face game all before the pandemic, but still... You know, these are folks that my relationship with them is online. My relationship with my convention friends is we see each other a couple of times a year if we're lucky. Having that opportunity to still interact with them online is fantastic. And then let's be fair, this saved my life during the pandemic. It has allowed me to play more games with more people. I have gotten more gaming in my life since the pandemic hit than I had before. And I had a lot of games before. I just now I can be like, hey, you want to play a Monday night game on the Forge? Yeah, sure. What time? And like I can work these games into my life without having to, you know, like plan an entire evening going out to the game store or to somebody else's house. And while I do not want to I do not want to diminish the value of getting together for a face-to-face -face game. The flexibility that gaming online through VTTs allows, it's made things so much better for me as a gamer. I did not think I would enjoy playing online as much as I do, but I have really adapted to it. Yeah. It's like I still have some friends who are like, nah, I don't like playing online. I only play in person. I'm like, that's fine. That is, that is absolutely your choice, your decision. I miss you. I wish I could show you how awesome it could be, mm -hmm. but I also like to each their own. I've got some friends that literally they just don't have the, like, 
they don't have a new enough computer to be able to you know, uh, true, have yeah. enough RAM to actually keep up with what's going on. And it's sad, but at the same time, I feel a lot more comfortable, especially in recent years, being able to game this way. So I think we can move on. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. All right, so now we're going to step into our downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. In celebration of 50 years of D&D, LEGO is holding a contest for creators to design a D&D-inspired LEGO set. The submission phase is over, but you can check out the many, many amazing creations that people have submitted before it moves to the next phase of the contest. There are some absolutely amazing things in there, some recreations of iconic covers, to astounding dioramas of encounters, or just your mom's basement where everyone used to play. <laughs> From here, the submissions will move on into an expert review, after which the finalists will be available for public vote. Uh, it's not exactly clear how this is going to be handled. There will be at least one winning set that will be available for purchase when the contest is over. Occasionally, with these type of challenges, they make other sets available for limited purchase, but this one may be a little different. It's not clear if they're going to do that with this one, but there will be at least one set available for purchase. Either way, there's going to be a link in our show notes, some very cool creative designs, all inspired by our beloved D&D. I have a feeling, too, if they're going to do official uh, an official D&D set, I can't help but think there might be some movie-related ones coming up next year, too. Yeah, yeah. But there's so many cool sets. Just go check it out. I'm going to talk about what I've been obsessing about since its most recent expansion came out. I've been playing Celasta Crown of the Magister, which is a video game that uses the D&D 5e OGL rules. Because it is not a licensed D&D product, the only subclasses and subraces that appear in the game are those that appeared in the SRD, meaning that the game fills in these gaps with new subclasses and new subraces. The most recent expansion has added Dragonborn, Warlocks, and Bards, and Monks. And in addition to the campaign and the core game in the first expansion, there's a scenario builder that reminds me a lot of Neverwinter Nights. Depending on your taste, the AI is either a great challenge or a pain in the rear end because it uses all kinds of tactical options, like pushing you down so that one monster can uh, use advantage on the attack against you or counterspelling healing magic. There are a lot of levers that you can play with to change difficulty, though, like adding a set amount of uh, set bonus to all of your d20 rolls or creating a persistent penalty to all of the enemy rolls. It's currently available for Xbox and PC. I honestly think it's worth checking out. I ended up picking up Solasta instead of uh, Baldur's Gate 3 just because I thought it would be kind of interesting to see how they implemented this without having the official license. I actually picked it up on Steam as well, but I'm in the middle of playing Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous, <laughs> and I determined to finish it before I start another game. So, But I have Celasta in Steam now. As we head out, we are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout-out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, also consider checking out... Misdirected Mark. Phil, Chris, Bob, and Jerry break down and get inside games, game mastering, playing games, and game design in an effort to entertain and inform you. We have used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.